Have you ever been marketed to in a totally transparent way, but it feels so good and so you just go with it? Oh, all the time. Um, I don't know why this comes to my mind. When I was in college, me and my college roommate, my college roommate and I were were watching, I think we were watching like college basketball or something. Uh-huh. And we weren't really like sports dude bros, but there was there was a commercial and this ad came up for, for I think it was like Burger King. And it was like a burger and it, and it just had like bacon on it and they were like drizzling cheese on it. And like, we just looked at each other and we're like, let's go get that right now. <laughs> And we just got up and went to Burger King and ordered exactly the thing on the commercial Whoa, and came back. That worked. Yeah. What about yeah. you? Oh, yeah, definitely. For me right now, it's those commercials. I don't even know what brand of diapers it is, but it's like first kid, second kid. So first kid, the parents are super conscientious about oh, making right. sure that the kid listens to classical music, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second kid, the kid's, you know, banging on pots and pans and mm-hmm. the mom doesn't care. That kind right, of thing. I right. love those. Yeah. Um, but don't you think that's what it's like to be a kid of the 80s and watch Stranger Things? Oh, like you're just being marketed to directly? <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's like it's like watching every Steven Spielberg movie ever made at the same time. Yeah, Netflix has tapped our collective consciousness and created a Gen X marketing juggernaut, and I love it. We are suckers. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I never had the bike I wanted as a child. And now I have a great bike, but I hardly ride it at all. Aw, I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm a professor, historian, author, and my favorite 80s movie growing up was Flight of the Navigator. Today, we are talking about everyone's favorite 80s nostalgia fest, Stranger Things. Is nostalgia really so magical, or is it filled with either accidental or deliberate acts of forgetting? We also talk about the meaning and power of monsters. And of course, the Cold War. USA! 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 Join us! Join us. like I don't mind being marketed to oh no this like I'm, this overt yeah. way I'm so happy that that it's marketed to people like me I mean it <laughs> makes it fun to watch right yeah I mean there's there are these overt ways that you know that it's supposed to be a 1980s setting like they have neon lights and the <laughs> oh, synthesizer yeah. music but to me the the way that I could tell that it was definitely supposed to be set in the 80s is that there are these prepubescent boys running around a neighborhood on bicycles. Yep. Like bike culture, we grew yep. up with that. And now, you really don't see that that often. Well, we don't now. let our kids go outside anymore, you know? Yeah. I yeah. started letting my girls go and get the mail because we have a mailbox that's not right by our house. And like, uh-huh. that's like a big parental move. Like walk a hundred feet down the street without being supervised to get the mail. Wow. That's a big deal. But I was I was like those boys in the 80s. We, I, was, totally. I was gone. I would come home like at dusk. No mm-hmm. one knew where I was. Which, yeah, if you're from Northern states, like both, of you, both you and I are from there, that mm-hmm. could be like nine o'clock. Yeah, uh, I mean, know, it was, you know, 10 we would come in, you know, late, run on the bikes. Of course, we should recap Stranger Things. It's yes. about it's about primarily these young boys, although there are young female characters that come in then too. But these boys, somewhere, where are they? Indiana, Middle America, rural New York? We don't know. They're it somewhere. feels like it could be anywhere. Maybe they say in the show and we just missed it. But mm-hmm. it's kind of like this, cla- it's, it's a very like stylized, 
1980s setting. Arcade games, mm-hmm. you know, plays this role. Complete with Winona Ryder as mom. So you know it's very, it's like yep. 80s gold. 80s right gold. There. And there is some kind of monstrous dark force breaking into their world. Or there's yes. another world they find out that exists alongside of their world, which they call the upside down world. Yeah, and it's like, Stephen King and Steven Spielberg kind of all wrapped into one. All wrapped into one. Yeah. Yeah. You know what that I thought about when I was watching this was I compared my own childhood to mm-hmm. kids nowadays. Because yeah. actually the town that you and I live in, there are every now and then you'll see young people riding around on bikes. Yeah. But I do think that in today's parenting climate, mm-hmm. um, what we think of as a conscientious parent mm-hmm. is the kind of parent who doesn't allow their kids to do those things. Exactly. And I, I came across this article about the tragic death of this young boy named Adam Walsh. Mm-hmm. And um, he is the son of the guy who does America's Most Wanted, yes. who hosts that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Many people know that story, Very but it was story. a little, you know, a little boy in the 80s who is Mm -hmm. um, tragically murdered. Mm -hmm. And then basically this national obsession with child abductions and like the danger toward our youths. And I saw the statistic that said that there was this kind of, I don't know, emotive frenzy height um, in the 1980s about like, our children are going to be kidnapped. And some statistic went around that said that 50,000 children were abducted every year. Really? Yes. That is... um, Was that true? Well... 64 cases were were investigated by the FBI that same year. Not 50,000. But 50,000 included like runaways, you know, oh, divorce situations where one parent yeah, will take yeah, the other yeah. kid. So it hugely inflated the statistic and mm-hmm. made people just terrified to let their children explore this really scary world, which Stranger right. Things kind of plays on that because oh, totally. it's like the world is really scary and the parents aren't, you know, right. investigating when they should be. Right, right. And <laughs> and I think what's charming about that, well, let's come back to the fear about that because that yeah. was that was a big, that played a huge role with my mom and my, my oh, childhood. Oh, I bet, but like, I bet. Yeah, the thing that's charming is this idea that when you're a kid, there is always some alien world that's happening in your life and in that's your friendships true. that's outside of the sight of your parents and outside of this kind of broader, you know, outside of school. And it's like you almost have your own like little kind of little kid cult going on. That's and totally just this true. weird stuff is happening. And I think that that's the show in at least a symbolic way and quite literally in the show plays that drama out in a fun way that I think. But Okay, so on the kidnapping thing, yeah, though, man, yeah. bringing that up, that brings back memories. Do you remember that as a kid? Oh, yeah, that so was everywhere. I. Yeah. The idea like that the you'd, milk curtain? The idea, yes. The idea that you'd be kidnapped. There, the case in, in I grew up in Wisconsin in, mm. in the northern U.S., the case was the Jacob Wetterling case oh, in wow. Minnesota, right. which oddly enough was just resolved only a couple of years ago. Actually, wow! Yeah, there was a there was a, there was a confession from the murderer and all this kind of stuff, and, and and I think they found his body and he was finally laid to rest. But oh my that gosh. story, the idea of like someone rolling up in a car and pointing a gun at you and saying "Get in the car," like we had to go through like role playing on this, not role playing right. so much, but like like my mom had us like. You know, we were very strictly instructed about like how to behave in a kidnapping situation. That's right. I think it, yeah, it absolutely was terrifying. My mom had a code, like a code word if she were yes, to call me. Yes, the code me. word. Yes. Yeah. What, do you remember or, your code? Or like, or send someone else to pick you up. Uh-huh. Like if this person doesn't say, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was like Jesus or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, I remember our word. Do you know what it was? No. Pickles. Okay. Yeah. I didn't like them as a kid. Uh. And so my mom knew if I were to work them into the conversation something was amiss. Oh, wow. Oh. It's very complex. Oh, okay. No, the code word for us was like, if my mom sent someone to pick us up, 
Oh, oh, oh. I would be like, okay, what's yeah. the code word? Oh, and then I'd have right. to say what it was. Yeah. But yeah, your code word is even sneakier though to try to weave it, to have to weave it into a yeah. conversation. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that just goes to show you, oh, listener, if you're younger than us, if, if you're our age, you probably grew up during this time too. But yeah. if, I don't know, do, 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 do the parents of, like, are you going to do that with your kids? Have code words and things? Well, I guess because it's like you want to be better safe than sorry. But then on the yeah. other hand, I don't want to raise my children in a little tiny cocoon. Mm-hmm. Because I think what parents are finding nowadays, at least the parents of older children will mm-hmm. tell me this, is that you can't really protect your children from those scary worlds forever or even when you think you're protecting them because social media exists, right? right and right. children are terrorizing one another on social media as well. Like we just, <laughs> people will find ways of being, you know, awful and predatory and all that kind of stuff. So I think in some ways, all of those extra measures are a way of giving parents a false sense of control and then mm-hmm. in some ways shaming them for things that are totally outside of their control. Yeah. Like this this child, Adam, you know, what could anyone have done? Right. I don't think there's, no, you know, there's nothing like yeah. we should not be blaming any particular right. person except for the person who, you Right. Know, what about it, another but. angle on this, on nostalgia, which takes it in, a, in another direction where maybe nostalgia isn't quite so, quite what it's cracked up to be. Yeah. What about the political role of nostalgia for communicating to the masses? Like in, in our era, there's this oh, make yeah. America great again thing. As soon as I heard that that was Donald Trump's slogan, I was like, oh, he's going to win the election. Just because it's like so memorable, right? Yeah, yeah. And like, what was Hillary's slogan? What was it? Oh, something like... Exactly. You don't know. You can't think of what it is, right? I can't. You don't don't know. I can remember, you know, change from... Change. And hope from the the, the one before. From Obama. Right. But but as a memorable (laughs) thing. But it taps into this idea like... I was reading this um, article on the Oxford University Press blog by a political scientist from the University of Sheffield named Matthew Flinders. He was talking about the way that nostalgia has become this like tool of populist politics, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just, the, you know, and obviously um, there's a kind of remembering there and riling up certain feelings about what was putatively great. But then nostalgia also counts on a certain kind of selective forgetting. Yeah, I guess we were just talking about that in the sense of like, oh, remember the 80s? Kids were just running around. Everything was great. But then there was like this fear gripping everyone about. Sure. And it's like, it's easy to forget about that too. Well, what's interesting about this and my experience watching Stranger Things was interesting because I love 1980s movies. That um, So the originals that Stranger Things is hearkening back to, mm-hmm. I enjoyed all of those. <laughs> and so it's interesting to watch a film actually made in the 80s and then watch a, a film that it, or a series that is a nostalgic take on right. the 80s. Right. And it's, interest, it's interesting to see the different themes that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the 80s, a lot of... A lot of the films had um, this sort of, like, the the big bads of the 80s, oftentimes um, the, the political connections were tied to everyone knows the big, you know, specter of communism, right? right. Like, there are, and uh, so it was oftentimes democracy good, communism bad. Yeah, it was a lot of Cold War stuff. It was a lot of, um, a, a lot of themes about, like, the, the terrors of technology or certain corporations. Um, so it's interesting to watch Stranger Things take those on, but mm-hmm. not necessarily take on the same kind of angst. Right. Um, so they're taking on different ones. What about economics in the show? Like the families are all kind of like these middle class ish families who are, you know, Saul sitting at the table and they kind of have like these 
three-bedroom, two-bathroom-looking houses out there in kind of a suburban sort of setting. I don't think anybody really lives outside of that, except for uh, the police the, the police chief. Oh, yeah. He, uh, Chief Chief uh, Hopper. Yeah. He lives um, kind of like in a shack out somewhere. But, but at any rate, like, the economy wasn't very good in the 80s, was it? Like, I don't remember the economy being very good. I remember, you know, my parents always struggling financially, and there was all this stuff. I mean, the economy really picked up in the 90s, but I think the 80s was a very— was kind of a bad time. Well, it's funny because there are all these movies about, you know, materialistic type movies that are iconic from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what is it? Like Tom Hanks, or not Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, those type of movies. But um, I don't know how the rest of the country is doing. I do think some of them were not. I mean, in the the early years of the um, of the decade, mm-hmm. those were surely different than the latter. But my family was not doing well financially, <laughs> right. so we were in our own recession. Right, you were having a personal pain family. Period. What did you think when you saw like the middle class? aspects of of Stranger Things? Well, I think it, you know, and my family was kind of like lower middle class, let's say in some ways, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, dipping maybe a little bit lower than that at points and maybe sometimes dipping into the middle class at some points. And so it felt all very familiar. Just just like the idea of a little band of boys, like doing stuff very much resonated with like growing up in a neighborhood. I lived in a subdivision. Do people use that word subdivision around here? Uh, Yeah, I think think, so. Okay. So it's like a subdivision, like a kind of like its own like neighborhood that was like its own set of streets and little cul-de-sacs and things. And the houses that look kind of the same. Houses that look kind of the same and yards that were about the same size. And like you could totally ride your bike up and down all the little nooks and crannies of the subdivision. And so to that sense, I think I was just unaware, you know, economically of what was really going on. That's really interesting. Do you remember your yourself theologically, like what you were thinking about God and the world wow. at that time? I think what I... The only thing I can remember myself thinking about God and the world at that time in my life was that I think my family kind of was in and out of a church setting that was really obsessed with, like as many people were in the 1980s, evangelicals, with the rapture. Right. It was all rapture theology. In fact, the church I remember attending sort of vaguely, at least at some point, maybe it was more in the 90s, was a church that like literally every sermon ended with some expectation of the second coming. Wow. Of Jesus. Like it would be like that— intense. Wow. And I read myself, okay, th- what what's the great the great story of panic of this era from Christian literature, how the the late, late great, great planet, planet Earth, Earth. yeah, the in best, the 70s. The yeah. best-selling book of the entire decade of the 1970s outsold every other book. Yeah. Just this one book that few people even know about or read today, The Late Great Planet Earth, but anybody who was I think around evangelical circles at that time knows about this book and knows about the kind of Cold War nuclear Armageddon yeah. kind of panic that it Traded, traded on. You know, there's this really interesting book that I came across called The Spiritual Industrial Complex, oh. America's Religious Battle Against Communism in the Early Cold War. It's a wow. really interesting book. It's by a guy named uh, Jonathan I love that Herzog. title. I know, isn't that's it great? So, that's a great title. Yeah, it's very evocative. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the points that he makes in the, the book is that the Cold War was waged with these theological— ideological commitments. And it Mm -hmm. basically divided the world into these dualisms that you can see in some 80s movies, um, but I I definitely lived through as a kid. And it basically took, you know, the good bad and made it good evil, which is a theological distinction, right? Like there's like democracy is the good Uh and communism is evil. Ronald Reagan, you know, good, Gorbachev, evil. Like, yes. Um, and the idea that communism was fueled by the demonic. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I think about teaching 
my students now, I think that might be kind of surprising to them. It was just the air that we breathed when we were kids. But mm-hmm. one of the movies that um, popped into my mind, an 80s movie that reminded me of that was um, Matthew Broderick's War Games. I don't know if oh, you remember that. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yeah. I've, yeah. Seen, I've seen War Games about 200 times. Oh, it's a just classic. Just because it's, it used to be on cable all the time. Like when I was oh, a kid, it was right. always be playing. Like, like the way that some cable channels now play... Um, the um, what's that? Oh, what's it called? The uh, the thing with it where people are like vampires and there's like a vampire romance oh, going on. Twilight, Twilight, Twilight yes. Yeah, yeah. The way that they played Twilight on cable now <laughs> was the way that they played war games on cable uh, when I was a kid. Nice, but those kind of the idea of like dividing the world and if you you knew that if there was ever an evil person mm-hmm. or if there was ever like a big bad, it was some way connected, you know, to those kind of Cold War poles. Yes. Now I want to ask you this. With that in mind, like, how do we interpret the good and the bad or the monster and the, like, mm-hmm. non-monster, the upside down in the regular world in Stranger Things? Like, what is the—what are the poles? Like, it's not democracy versus communism. Right. What is it? What is it? Well, I'll, I'll take a cue from an article I was browsing just some—I mean, a lot of people have done kind of writing about Stranger Things yeah. and theology and stuff. I'm, I'm lo- I was looking at an article on Christianity Today's website called How Stranger Things Re-Enchants the World uh-huh. by Alyssa Wilkinson. Um, and, oh, and this leads to something I wanted to bring up, too, about these polarities and about an author I think that you'll be familiar with. But and to answer your question— I wonder if just taking a cue from the title of that article, if the polarity is between, you know, it's almost like religion and not religion Mm. or enchantment and not enchantment. Interesting. Um, I mean, you know, does, has Stranger Things gotten such a reception? I think that this article makes that pitch at least. I didn't read it fully, but I'm guessing it makes the pitch that what's charming about it is this re-enchantment of the world. In other words, I guess that's a Weberian term, isn't it? That mm, ench- enchantment yeah. idea that's and the really disenchantment. But like this idea that our world has become devoid of monsters, devoid of the supernatural, right, devoid right. of all this stuff. And so Stranger Things just introduces this totally different world existing, intertwined with our own world, which is hyper-monstrous, hyper-demonic in that sense. Yeah. Um, and so, and in fact, would remind fans of certain Christian authors of and this is the author of this article brings this up um, of the novels of Frank Peretti. Oh yeah. The kind absolutely. of parallel dimension was also the, I'm quoting the article, the, the kind of parallel dimension was also the appeal of the horror novels written by Frank Peretti and sold largely to a Christian market in the late 1980s and late 1990s, this present darkness and piercing the darkness yeah. and spiritual warfare. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, absolutely. Well, I had an opportunity to speak with Mr. Peretti last summer because I'm working on some research related Excellent. to this. Yeah. And uh, first off, super nice guy and really insightful person. Mm-hmm. But I, as a child, I remember those books mm-hmm. and they were terrifying did oh, you yeah. do you remember them as a kid yeah i think we i think we we had we had some book like that i forgot what it was we had another book maybe it was another hal Lindsay book called satan is alive and well on planet earth oh wow doesn't that, that sound like a great a title on the nose title <laughs> <laughs> I don't you don't know. want to leave it up to guessing whether satan is alive and wow, well on planet earth he just satan is, is alive he and is. well on planet earth that's just a fyi <laughs> i think there was some frank peretti floating around too but i don't remember it distinctly oh yeah peretti well uh i reread his books and mm-hmm. um a lot of the horror still holds up it's really interesting reading them as an adult but yeah he he i don't know i mean he definitely um i see him as someone who's like a kind of a christian version of the same stuff that stephen king was doing you know Uh like it 
um, right. which is still scary. I don't oh, know. Oh, totally. You oh no, I don't want to. I, I can't. I can't even handle it. Yet. I don't watch I, the that. The TV special scared the daylights no out way. of me. No way. No <laughs> way. So. I'm not going there. of like this this huge terrifying monster talk talk a little bit about like what do you think about this the construction of the monster mm. and or the monsters it's a little ambiguous as I to I know what. in the show right it, yeah. and it's it's very strange it's like you don't know where this other world came from really in yeah. stranger things maybe you know? we'll learn more in season 3 season 3 oh season yeah. 3 pro- well season 3 the, the preview okay so we should note that this episode yes. we hope it'll come out right before season 3 yes. kind of make a little hay we can on all the fact get ready for we'll all get ready for season 3 which is not out yet at the time of this taping but it seems like they're even toying with notions of certain characters like start becoming monsters i think yeah, those are some popular fan yeah. theories right uh-huh. now um, especially like the one character who was like that older kind of mean, abusive um, oh, yeah, kid yeah, in yeah. the show. I forgot yeah. what his name was in the show. I don't know. Exactly. It seems like it should be like Billy or Brock. something like that. Yeah. Billy or Brock or <laughs> we'll just call him Billy or Brock. Yeah. But um, so, yeah. So anyway, monster studies is very popular in biblical studies right now. Interesting. The study of the monster is, is as hot as it's ever been. So religious studies has kind of picked up monster theory as a big rubric. I'm always torn about these kind of things. Like I'm always, I always gravitate toward just like very pragmatic kind of um, pragmatic reasons for why this sort of stuff happens. Like, oh, it's just interesting. And so biblical scholars have just run out of things to write about that are like, we've kind of done the historical criticism thing (laughs) to death. And so now you look for these new cultural avenues. So there's always that. And I think that that's true, but it still has to be interesting. And I think clearly the monster offers all kinds of bizarre ways to reflect upon many things. And by the way, there are tons of monsters in the Bible. Well, well, explain to me how a monster lens like illuminates something for you as a, as a scholar. Yeah, sure. So, like, I mean, I have I have an article on this um, about the Book of Job, for example. Like, uh-huh. the Book of Job trades in um, monster language, at least to some extent. You have this Leviathan character right. yeah. in Job that is evoked by Job himself um, in chapter three, and then and then it comes back up in this really. Um, sort of like really loaded in serious way in God's own speech at the end of the book of Job itself, where animals that are just like normal domestic animals also kind of turn into monsters. And there are other characters like Rahab and Yam and the twisting serpent and behemoth and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so the monsters, I mean, there's so many different ways to talk about monsters. Yeah. I'm at a loss to like summarize it, but like one way, for example, is to talk about um false resemblance or like that monster somehow interact with humans by having like certain human characteristics, Mm, mm -hmm. but then not in other ways. And I think in the book of Job, you get a lot of comparison between animal and monster characters to humans. So Job Uh like wishes he had, Job at one point in the book wishes that he, his bones were like stronger or he says, oh, that I had bones of bronze and I'd be able to withstand all this torment. Job is a character who's tormented badly. And then in God's description of this behemoth character, he says, behemoth has bones of bronze. So there's like this comparison drawn where it's like, oh, these animals, these monstrous animals are maybe like what you wish you could be or something like that. Or they're a way of just, 
you know, they're a way of just shocking people into some kind of new realization about the world or about who we are. Because when you see a monster, just like your question earlier, you see monsters and stranger things and you start asking, okay, what does this monster represent? Right. And the classic monster theories like about Night of the Living Dead and stuff like that is that they were fears about immigration, right? Right. Like zombies are always about fear of a cultural other or Or something like that. Or like vampires are about sexual repression or something right, like that. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And so I think it just opens up like this huge symbolic world. But really, you can you can go monster crazy in the Bible, totally. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, the Stranger Things monster is a lot of fun and it's scary and pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that the adorable relationships between the kids themselves oh, are, yeah. it's like you come for some of the horror, but really you stay. You stay for, for the, those darned yeah. adorable Children, you stay for um, um, Mike falling in love with Eleven. Oh gosh, that's how you stay in those for that. two crazy kids. <laughs> so if you were, I, I've asked you this before, but like if you were, did you recognize yourself in any of these these characters? Oh man, yeah, I think I think just like just the boys, like any of yeah. the boys, I would say in a sense of just like feeling, yeah, just like you're part of that little like band of brothers. And like, <laughs> there's like the politics of like who's best friends with who and who's on the outs and who's on the ins. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, did, did, did you feel as a woman, a point of connection with the show? In oh that yeah, it focused for sure. On, on the boys? Or for was sure. That? Yeah. I was Barb. For sure. Oh, Barb. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's, yeah. Well, they're the older. I was like the one that was like, are yes. you sure you should do that? You shouldn't be and doing this. And then she's dead. Dead. <laughs> she's dead. That's me. She goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about Nancy and Barb for a moment there. They're a little older though, too. Yeah. Well, I like the kind of two generations of kids because there's the older guys um, and, oh, I'm going to blank on on. Uh, the name of the boyfriend, Steve. 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 Steve I yep. love that character. You gotta love Steve. Yeah, he's got a really fun arc. Can I tell you about something strange that I did identify with? This what? is this is off topic, but I'm just okay. gonna go there. So, on the idea of the upside down world. Yes. We had this thing at our house recently where we had birds nesting in our attic. Whoa. And we're like, do That's we want to pay fun. somebody to come up and take these birds out of the attic? And we're like, no, I'm not going to pay. I'm going to go in the attic, which I've never gone in before oh in my, my house. Gosh. And I'm going to find these birds. I'm a little bit afraid of animals like that. I don't love it. And I go up into my attic and I've got like a long sleeve shirt on to protect me against fiberglass. And I get up there and it's like I've seen uh-huh. in the movie and the door to the attic shuts and I'm up there. This is the most, can I just pause for a sec yes. and say, this is the most dad-like story you have yet told on this show. Oh, okay, it, keep going. It's going to go f- deeper into the dad. <laughs> and so I'm up there and it closes and I'm like, I'm like holding like a, I'm like have a headlamp on and I've got like a, I don't know if I had like a stick or something yeah. in my hand, like a bat. I'm like walking around and it, I was like, this is the upside down world. There were little pits, there were little <gasps> bits of, of fiberglass like floating Ooh, around. So yeah. on the upside, in the aesthetic of the upside down world right. on the show, it's like there are these little part particulate things yeah. floating around. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the upside down world. It was so spooky. And the place where the birds were was like maximally far from the entrance of to the attic. Of course it was, of course. And I'm like crawling through these like passageways and over rafters and I'm trying to like step on the rafters and I get close to where the birds are. Just fast forward this story. And I look at the birds and the birds look at me in the face and start squawking and I panicked and I tripped and I stepped through the ceiling of my house into my bathroom. <laughs> Peak dad right there. <laughs> Just, that was- and my wife is down She's like, Peak Brian, dad, what are sorry. you doing? Are you okay? And she's like trying to push my leg back up through the <laughs> hole. And then I couldn't get my leg back up out of the hole again. And these birds oh, are like no. right in front of my face. I'm like, get my leg out of here. Ah, ah, ah. Oh and these my birds. gosh. So we ended up paying someone to come out and take the birds out. And then also paying someone about 800 bucks to fix our ceiling of our bathroom in our master bedroom, which I fell through. Okay. Three thoughts here. One, 
That is just, I have to say it again, so dad-like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm it sure was, your girls were just like, what were they doing? Playing oh, in the room? We kept them like sequestered. We were like, get out of here. You can't see. I was so embarrassed. You protect <laughs> I was screaming things that they shouldn't hear. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was bad. Okay. So there's that. Um, the second thing that we didn't mention yet, and I think it's worth mentioning, is that, I don't know about you, when I saw the that aesthetic that you're talking about, the kind of fiberglassy, right. whatever, right. Um, I thought nuclear holocaust. Oh, fallout. Um, Yep. Yeah, so yep. that's something that is def was definitely characteristic of the 80s. Yep. Paranoia and fear yep. around mutually assured destruction. Mm -hmm. um, of course, that I guess you could put that underneath the whole like US versus USSR thing. Totally. Um, but that that was something that I I almost felt like I'm not sure how we'll will be told how to interpret that later on as the series goes. So I'm kind of curious about that because I don't really know how like that's that's what I associated it mm -hmm. with visually, and it'd be interesting to talk to somebody younger to see what they thought it was. Well, we'll have to we'll have to see. Yeah, but the other thing, okay, last was I thought that this the upside down, yeah, was really interesting because so far, the thing that I think would be terrifying, we haven't really seen this, is that we don't see like a an upside down version of other people as much. Right, you become yourself but you're just kind of like in this shadowy place. Yeah, because to me, what would be terrifying is seeing like this sort of, you know, like this idea of a looking glass or, oh, you know, the Alice yeah. in Wonderland kind of, like the, that you head into this bizarre world is not unprecedented. But the idea that you would encounter yourself in a different way, I think would be really oh, scary. Is that not what the Jordan Peele horror movie, Us? Yes. I, 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 cannot, I can't bring myself to watch it because I'm not. Oh my gosh, it looks it's so It's too scary. terrifying, but that it looks like just from the trailer to that movie. Yeah. That probably everyone listening to this has already seen that. And I knows know, exactly we're so behind. We're, we're just huge wimps. We were going to do that for an episode. We're just like, we can't watch it. We can't handle it. Okay. <laughs> he's he's an American genius. That's another whole other Another, another thing. I mean, consider this though, but returning to this idea of nostalgia and, yeah. and its its perils and just like young people today. I mean, consider this commentary on kids how- Kids today. Kids today. Let's, let's end by harping about kids yeah, today. let's do it. Consider this commentary on how the world has changed over the past two decades since we were high schoolers or we were kids. Yeah. Like, tell me, just briefly, what was your attitude on approaching age 16 and getting your own driver's license and car? Were you were you excited for that? Were your parents like, Oh, what was my attitude? Yeah. yeah, it was it was like a positive thing. Yeah, I was like, I was looking forward to it like crazy, like yeah. the freedom that it offered. So my wife, who's a therapist, a mental uh -huh. health therapist, and works yeah. with a lot of teenagers, she told me just the other day that there's this huge trend that she sees. This is anecdotal. So yeah. I don't have like stats on this, okay. But she said there's like this trend that she sees a lot of teenagers, they do not want their driver's license. Why don't they? And they're putting it off license. because they're afraid. They're afraid to drive. Oh, sad. And maybe their parents are afraid. Is it economic reasons? I don't think so. The economy is booming right now. I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. it's an issue for some people, but the one she's telling me about, it sounds like it's fear. So it made me just wonder about this nostalgia thing as a, as a trend, like this looking backward kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I want to be younger. I don't want to get older. I don't want my driver's license. I don't want to grow up. Or there was that song that was a hit like last year about like, Wish we could turn back time yeah, yeah, to the good yeah. old day, like all that kind of stuff. Like that seems to be in the water now. This like nostalgia is in. And maybe it's always, I mean, is that the question though? Has nostalgia always kind of been in or is there some resurgence of nostalgia now? I just wonder why. Like, well, I mean, you and I teach young people that are not too much older than, than um, your wife's clients. Um, and to me, when I think about their experience of the world, yeah, 
um, they are just exposed to so much more information. So mm. they're just taking in all of these terrorizing stories right. um, very at a few, rate that we just we just had no idea. Very, I mean, like we would just call which, each other on the phone, and yeah. that was how everybody got information. The thing about these terror stories, and the newspaper, these terrible stories, though, are they coming true in anyone's life? Well, fifty thousand kidnapped actually no sixty four. Oh, I'm terrified of drive. But like, why? Like, what's the actual terror? You can take in information and be like paralyzed. Well, for me, that, but, this is a little scary as a parent because I think about raising yeah. my sons and I think, what are the subliminal messages that I'm giving them <laughs> about fear? Right, like right. because I want them to grow up to be, you know, ideally yeah. self actualizing <laughs> human beings that are like independent and looking forward to. Yeah. Striking out on their own and all that stuff. Those are all very culturally laden values, but I'll admit it. That's what I would like for my child. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, why would you not want that? No, me yeah. too. I guess this nostalgia thing for me is it's it's definitely a double a proverbial double-edged sword. Because yeah. on the one hand, I feel the freedom to be charmed by it mm-hmm. in the show and to revisit those times. And I also feel this, I don't know, I feel a reaction against wanting to look backward as though that that world were so great. Well, historians are always super suspicious about nostalgia and it's usually an opportunity to investigate and find out like what it's usually more about the person experiencing nostalgia than it is the actual past events. True. I guess maybe we're both historians at heart in some way. I mean, you're an actual historian, but you 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 count. I'll be a historian. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. We love all our weirdos, near and far. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion. And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. (laughs) No. (laughs) These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo, and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to trigger the studio dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.